Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, Texas. My name is Susan Yarbrough, and I am the very lucky student intern minister in this dynamic and activist congregation. Our worship associate today is Emily Teets, a member of this church, and you probably didn't know this, herself an ordained minister. And our talented musicians are Brian Euchre, Stephen Soph, Trevor Shaw, and our music director, whom I always refer to as maestro, Brent Baldwin. First Unitarian Universalist Church is a church of deeds, not creeds. And we're part of a liberal religious tradition that encourages the application of reason to faith and welcomes people from all spiritual traditions, including but not limited to Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, neo-paganism, and even agnosticism and atheism. I'd like to extend a particularly warm welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. Part of our tradition holds that there is a divine spark in everyone. So in keeping with that tradition, please take a moment to turn to those around you and greet their spark with the warmth of your own spark. The flaming chalice is a symbol of our faith, and we light it at the beginning of every worship service. As we do that, we say together the words printed in your bulletin. Please join Emily Teets as she leads us in those words. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Many of us are here today in this room because the beliefs and creeds of the mainstream religions and denominations we grew up with were simply not a good fit for our view of the world and for our ideas of freedom and responsibility and reason and faith and human agency and God. I've often wondered whether a lot of those religions and denominations would have been more palatable to us had their wisdom texts been more readable and accessible. I grew up with the King James Version of the Bible, and although I found some of the language majestic and comforting, much of it was off-putting and mystifying and confusing, such as how we were supposed to love God yet fear God at the same time. So I followed with interest the proliferation of other translations of the Bible, and I've been especially intrigued by Eugene Peterson's The Message, The Bible in Contemporary Language. Reverend Peterson is a retired Presbyterian minister with an advanced degree in Semitic languages. Most people familiar with his translation of the Bible agree that he takes some liberties here and there, but they also agree that the Message Bible causes the text to come alive and to speak more clearly to the reader. In both of today's readings, I'll offer a passage from the King James Bible and then the same passage from the Message Bible. Here's the first one from verses 1 through 8 of the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Scriptures, much like what the the musicians sang at the beginning. From the King James Version, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, 
a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. The Message Bible says it this way, and Eugene Peterson always puts some kind of heading. So the heading on this one is, there's a right time for everything. There's an opportune time to do things, a right time for everything on earth, a right time for birth and another for death, a right time to plant and another to reap, a right time to kill and another to heal, a right time to destroy and another to construct, a right time to cry and another time to leap, to laugh, a right time to lament and another time to cheer, a right time to make love and another to abstain, a right time to embrace and another to part, a right time to search and another to count your losses, a right time to hold on and another to let go, a right time to rip out and another to mend, a right time to shut up and another to speak up, a right time to love and another to hate, a right time to wage war and another to make peace. Here ends the reading from one of our sources. Every Unitarian Universalist church goes through a lengthy process of developing its own mission statement. We've written ours on the upper wall to your left, and we say it together every Sunday to remind each other of our communal purpose. Let's do that now, as Emily Teets leads us. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and to do justice. Every week in our service, we have a time of quietness together, and each of us enters it in his or her or their own way. For me, it's with prayer, and for others, it's through meditative stillness or simply following their breath to a place of calmness. After today's reading and prayer, you're invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, hope, memory, concern, celebration, or whatever is moving through your heart. Simple directions that will accommodate everyone or everyone easily are found in italics in your order of service. Our second reading this morning is from verses 22 and 23 of the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians in the Christian scriptures. The King James Version uses these words, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. But the more full-bodied Message Bible says it this way, but what happens when we live God's way? God brings gifts to our lives, 
much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is of no use in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Here ends the reading from another of our sources. I invite you to enter into this time of quietness as I offer a prayer. God of many names, whose highest name and form is human love, the prayers of the people now rise in the midst of a great cloud of witnesses. As I turn 70 today, I turn to you in gratitude for letting me be with the people gathered here. I never thought I would see this day, so I especially thank you for all the joys and sorrows of my life, for the grandmother who saved my life for your lasting care, for the wide circle of friends who are my larger family, for all the strangers who have taught me so much about myself, for keeping faith with me even when I did not keep it with you, and for the burning bushes that call us to the common holy ground of our lives. Thank you for this church and for the way its people have welcomed me, accepted me, encouraged me, and patiently taught me. May they know that I love them and pray for them every day. And may you grow in me the servant's heart I see in them, that I may be of use to you the rest of my years. Remind us of the mystery and presence of what holds us, no matter what we choose to call it, and teach us how to unfold, unfold into that which holds Separate us gently from those attachments that do not serve all of creation. Open our hearts to being the receivers and the givers of amazing grace. Teach us how to live in constant gratitude. Thank you for my life and for those who kindle my desire for you. Amen. Thank you for being here, and thank you for letting me be here. 25,550. That's the number of days God has given me on this earth so far. 613,200 hours. 36,792,000 minutes. Both of my parents died of Alzheimer's disease, one at age 86 and the other at 92. So if genetics are as persuasive as science tells us they are, I maybe have about 16 good years left, 5,280 days, 
and perhaps a few years that won't be so good. In other words, my life is about 80% over, and no, (laughs) I don't want to think about stuff like that on what is the happiest birthday I've ever had. As usual, preaching assignments uh, for this church year were agreed upon at a minister's meeting in August, and I fully expected to be given this very Sunday because it's one of those that's known throughout all denominations as a seminarian Sunday. You know, a holiday weekend when most people are away or involved in family activities, church attendance is light, and they send in the rookie to preach and to make mistakes in front of sparse crowds. But when I got home from the minister's meeting and saw what today's date was, I began to cry with gratitude for I never thought I would be leading worship on my 70th birthday. What a great and amazing gift to be with all of you in this sanctuary today. And what another gift to have friends who have great senses of humor and who usually but unintentionally say something hilarious to me that jumpstarts the writing of a sermon. In this case, it was a catch-up conversation with a friend at a local coffee house in early September. We talked about her grandkids, my seminary classes, some college memories, our knee replacements, our dogs, and books we had recently read. And as we carefully cut a brownie in half to share it, Judith, whose husband is a retired minister, said, so uh, what are your sermons going to be about this year? I ticked off new beginnings for Rosh Hashanah the language of liberal white people about racism for Martin Luther King Day and Black History Month, spiritual resilience and endurance for the morning of the Austin Marathon, which will take me an hour to get here instead of 15 minutes, and a farewell sermon in May. Finally, I mentioned today's sermon, and I told her that the working title was The Gifts of Age. Well, Susan, she said, that'll be about 10 blank pages, won't it? (laughs) And, by the way, she said, are you familiar with Proverbs 16.31? Why, no, I said, but I'm sure that in my many voyages through the Old Testament, I must have read it. What does it say? Judith whipped out her iPad, went to the BibleGateway.com website, and read these prophetic words to me. A gray head is a crown of glory. (laughs) It is found in the way of righteousness. Still laughing and considering myself crowned and glorious and righteous and wonderfully friended, I went home and wrote this sermon in almost one sitting, and it is indeed a sermon about why I feel age to be a gift from God and how the practice of reaching for the fruit of the Spirit renews that gift every day. All faith and wisdom traditions have many words to say about aging and dying, And because of my own religious heritage, I usually turn first to Hebrew and Christian scriptures as text and starting points for sermons because I feel such an organic connection to them and to the faiths they represent. So what I want to do in our time together this morning is to talk briefly about the context of each of the scriptural passages I chose for our readings and then talk about how those passages speak to and with each other and what their ongoing lessons can be for us. 
The New Testament passage about the fruit of the Spirit is part of a strongly polemic letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the early Christian churches he had founded in the first century in Galatia, which was a region in Central Asia Minor that's now, uh, that's now in Turkey. The converts to Christianity who comprised the membership of these new churches were mostly from two groups. Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the, was the Messiah they had hoped for, and pagans of Celtic origin who had migrated to the area in prior centuries. Paul had learned that some of the Jewish converts were urging the pagan converts to follow traditional Jewish practices, such as circumcision, Sabbath observance, and dietary laws as the appropriate next step in demonstrating their new faith. Paul saw this as a threat to the new Christianity, and his impassioned letter to the Galatians admonishes them that righteousness, which in Hebrew and Christian scriptures means a right covenantal relationship with God, that righteousness depends not on observance of religious law, but on receiving the fruit of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and temperance. Notice that the King James Version I read accurately translates the singular form of the Greek word for fruit, karpos, which we would translate, transliterate as K-A-R-P-O-S. The singular form of that to encompass nine different things. Throughout the New Testament, the word karpos is used literally to mean the fruit of trees, fields, and the earth. And it's also used metaphorically to mean human works and deeds, like by your fruit you will know them. What's so interesting in the use of the singular noun to encompass nine different virtues is its clear implication that the fruit of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, is a package deal. No one of these nine marks of character stands alone, but all are in relation to each other. Fortunately, it's not hard to translate this New Testament concept into the language of our Unitarian Universalist seventh principle, and we can easily begin by saying that the values stated in all of our principles form their own interdependent web. Those values of dignity, justice, equity, compassion, acceptance, encouragement, freedom, responsibility, conscience, democracy, peace, liberty, and respect. They function as a whole package deal, and they function best in concert with each other. And I think we can also say that each of us contains our own interdependent web of the nine things enumerated in Galatians and that each of us functions best when those nine character traits are operating in relation to each other. On the other hand, we know as a congregation and as individuals that when one of those gifts is missing or malfunctioning, the collective and personal webs are torn. It's hard, for example, to practice gentleness if we don't have patience or to encourage each other if we don't have respect. These fruits and gifts are handed to us with grace and abundance, and they're intended to work synergistically and to keep us whole and holy.
So how on earth does this notion of karpos, the fruit of the Spirit, pertain to the passage in Ecclesiastes about there being a right time for everything? The ancient Greeks had two words for time, chronos, which referred to chronological or sequential time, and kairos, we would transliterate that as K-A-I-R-O-S, which meant the right or opportune time, a period or a season in which a significant event happens. I'll come back to those two concepts of time in just a minute. The book of Ecclesiastes is thought to have been written in the 3rd century B.C., possibly by David's son Solomon. This was a time of change and upheaval in Israelite culture and the culture surrounding it, largely due to the standardization of currency, the upsurge in commercialization that it engendered, and the fact that not everyone had benefited equally from these changes. The author of Ecclesiastes surveys life, finds that much of it is evil and unjust, observes that human, humans have many limitations, and yet maintains that even in the face of death, we should embrace, its life, embrace life and its good things as gifts from God. In other words, even though life is precarious and perplexing and God is mysterious and unfathomable, it's good to keep on seeking, searching, standing in awe of the holy, and finding enjoyment in love, work, and play. In a recent discussion with a wise Mennonite pastor, I started talking about how this passage illuminates the many contradictions which give our lives texture and fullness and three-dimensionality, and which keep our minds and hearts expanding in our intellectual and emotional attempts to hold and entertain conflicting feelings, opinions, and points of view in ourselves and in others. Because she's a Bible scholar and I'm not, the pastor kindly pointed out that the words from Ecclesiastes also remind us to live in Kairos time, not the kind of time that has us counting our years, but the one that lets us dwell in the right season of time. And I begin to think about the time I'm now living in with all of you. One of the best things about this congregation is that it's truly multi-generational. And even though the younger church is with us only partway through our Sunday services, they remind us of our youth, our love of stories and fun activities, the freedom of hopping down the aisle and being able to sit on the floor, the ability to get up from the floor, <laughs> and the fact that aging is the province of us all. And I think I'm safely guessing that, given the choice, none of us grown-ups here in this room will want to be 8 or even 18 again. For no matter what adult age we are, we know on some level or another that there's no substitute for maturity, experience, and perspective. I've never had any of those major birthday thingies. Uh, none of those life begins at 40 minutes or the crepe-hanging idea that I was over the hill at 50 or that at 60 I was older than dirt. But, uh, <laughs> but 70 has given me some impetus for reflection about what I've learned about the fruit of the Spirit of God 
and how it's continually held out to me, and about how to enjoy all nine parts of it in Kairos time with you. The year before I moved to Austin in June 2014 to intern with this church, I lived in a retirement community in Houston. At the age of 66, I was the youngest resident there, and almost everyone else was old enough to be my parents. Many of them fondly referred to me as the youngster or addressed me as kid, and I enjoyed it enormously. But even more, I enjoyed them and learned so much from them about aging and about how receiving and propagating the fruit of the Spirit led them day by day to an appreciation of Kairos time and to an extraordinary ability to live in the gift of the present. As I look back over the gift of years, and especially my time living with superannuated, very old people in their late 80s and 90s, I began writing down lessons learned and gifts received from them and from others who have loved me and cared for me, and I thought I would share some of my favorite ones with you now. The first is that it's important to know what we believe, but it's even more important to know what we hold sacred because what we hold sacred will inform our actions much more than what we believe. Second, the past is our ally, for in it we learned how to grieve and to laugh, to say hello and to say goodbye, to experience heart-stopping beauty as well as soul-destroying evil, to know pain and to know healing. In the process of moving from the developmental injuries each of us sustained in childhood to a spiritual adulthood, we've learned how to feel all the things, and this in itself is a cause for rejoicing. Third, the most generous and godlike act we can perform is to embrace our imperfections and those of others, and to be less judgmental and more yielding. Fourth, and as a corollary to number three, as we give language to the impulses of our hearts and souls, one of the best goals is to become fluent in forgiveness. Fifth, every disenchantment and disappointment is an, is an opportunity for learning. In other words, everything and everyone teaches if only we're willing to learn. Sixth, Spiritual growth is not so much, so much a matter of letting God in as letting God out. Seventh, if we think of aging only in physical terms and chronos time, it often doesn't seem like much of a blessing. But if we think of it in terms of kairos time, for which there's a purpose and a readiness, aging becomes an interior landscape of great beauty where new priorities emerge, where we can relax into who we are and into the open freedom of deep being, and where the quality of our presence is strong and full and spacious. We've all known elders like this. Many of them are sitting in the pews among us right here, right now. Those wise ones who know how to let time go by without losing the life it contains who have created uncomplicated agendas for happiness, who have made peace with how much they have forgotten, 
who practice gratitude for what they remember, and who transform regret into relief. Those wise ones who set aside interest in the chronological beginnings and endings of things, and instead cherish the kind of love to which we dedicate ourselves for so long that we no longer remember quite how it began. Those who fully witness the faith and anticipation of younger people about what lies in store for them, and who stay steady when they feel the frightening speed of the one-way journey of our lives and see the wave of mortality breaking over them and every, everyone they know. Those wise ones who know what it means to grow a soul, who have a sense of ongoingness and have learned how to rest in it. Eighth, if we gently lean into our fears, we can avoid curling inward in doubt. And we may even find that we are leaning on everlasting arms. Ninth, not everything that counts can be counted. And tenth and finally, from here on out, it's all about gratitude and the knowledge that we are always, always together in the presence of God. Karpos and Kairos, the ninefold fruit offered freely to us by a Holy Spirit, and the perfect time for gathering, ingesting, and sharing that fruit. Affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity, a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, marshalling and directing our energies wisely, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates everything and everyone. I see all of these fruits, this carpos in you, and I continue to receive them from you as we all age together every minute of every hour. Most of all, I thank God for letting me see this day, this part of my life, this Kairos time with you. Grace to us and peace. Amen. Our formal worship today is almost ended, and in celebration of our time together, we extinguish the chalice with the words printed in the order of service. Uh, please follow Emily as she leads us. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. For our benediction, may the grace of the Spirit continue to bless this generous and loving congregation. May we continue to share the fruit of the Spirit with each other with joy and gratitude. And may we give thanks for the time in which we live, for it is indeed the time for everything on this earth. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.